Hello and good morning, sir. Hey, good morning, evening, afternoon to you. <laughs> oh yeah, good, good evening. Hey, how are you? I'm doing good, man. Just uh, getting set up. Okay, cool. Whoa, whoa, whoa! I'm looking forward to this one because I can feel your, yeah. I feel your energy and rage from here. Yeah, you know, I I was kind of nervous about it today. Not really nervous, but I was like, oh, I hope I'm prepared. Like, I don't know if I'm prepared enough to make such a juxtaposition between two things. Um, so I wasn't sure how to do it, you know. And I was like, well, I don't want to like, I don't know. I just, I guess, I feel like I like I was ready. I'm ready for this. I want to talk about it as soon as possible because I don't want to get further away from my readings of Animal Farm. I probably won't read it again until next year. Yep. Um. But at the same time, I think it's such a massive topic and it's so important that I was like, ah, I don't think I'm prepared enough for it, but it's okay. Like, we'll just do it, do what we can. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't. If it does, it does. And do you remember Animal Farm quite clearly or? I read it like six months ago. Um, I do remember it relatively well, um, relatively being the compared to maybe other people well but compared to how i normally would remember it if i was going to teach it not very well or do you want to just yeah yeah i, I get the feeling that's what you, you want to do right you want to talk about animal farm as a text and then talk about how it's relevant to the to the, the world that we live in today yeah absolutely that's that's really i i think it's an important text um and i think that it has a lot of um it's pertinent, you know, and I think it's valuable in, in a, assessing, like, not only like, just like the, the problems in the world, but also just like politics in general, right? It's like, um, and I don't want to get too political, but I mean, like, in general, you know, there's always these promises being made and whatnot. So, so yeah, I think that starting out by talking about it just as a text, um, uh, a fictional text, um, is the most beneficial because that's what it was the intent right it was not to be pinpointed towards one specific event um so yeah we do know um yeah so okay that's that makes sense to me and i'll just say don't hold back because all i can say is that don't hold back <laughs> but yeah so shoot let's yeah i'm ready whenever you are you want to get started with this just yeah to, let's uh, let's let's do it so i'm gonna ask you so you recently taught animal farm at your school um how long did you teach it for and um what were the, some of the things that really stood out to you about the text uh did, was one of your questions how long did i teach it for yeah like how long did you actually okay. teach it for was it did you teach it with the kids for a month two weeks eight weeks uh okay good yeah, so I, I taught Animal Farm just recently um, to my 10th grade, and we read it over a period of about, well, 15 days, but which so three weeks, but in all truth, I don't feel like that was enough time. And so next year when I teach it, it will be a minimum of four weeks, um, possibly more, um, because I, I, I did like to have my students engage in activities and kind of go through the process of the rebellion, uh, the running for office, um, the setting up of laws, and et cetera, et cetera. And then ultimately, I stopped after creating a schism or, um, well, the students themselves did it, like a, um, 
you know, some of the students dissented. And so they were broken up into two factions, which is ultimately what happens um, in multiple farm um, briefly before the expulsion or, or expelling of Snowball. So yeah, it was like a uh, three week period. Um, and overall, like the book, so um, I'm not sure how much detail you want out of me, but the book is written by George Orwell. Um, it was written, darn it, I don't even have the exact date on me right now, but I know it was around World War II. Um, 1945, 1944 to 1945. Okay, yeah, so that was the closing of World War II, right? So um, Orwell's book is based, um, well, it's, I, I don't want to say it's based on the Russian Revolution, but most people agree that that is the case. And in many ways, it is the case because the characters in the book, uh, including Napoleon, uh, Snowball, um, Squealer, and, and others, are representations of like Lenin and Stalin and Trotsky. And um, these were all revolutionaries, you know, that... Um, uh, started in, well, the early 1900s and eventually uh, ignited the revolution in Russia through a, a variety or a series of, of movements and um, attempts at overthrowing the current government. So in brief, the story, it takes place on a for farm, which I think is beautiful. Um, it's called Manor Farm. And uh, it's a story about the mistreatment of animals by humans in a sense and um you know eventually the animals get pissed off and they overthrow the humans um, but this comes with a lot of different baggage i mean it's a short book but there is so much going on inside of it um and it all begins with a dream right old major who is like one of the first characters we get to know he's a very forceful uh visionary uh character and he was supposed to represent uh, Karl Marx and Lenin, um, mostly Karl Marx, but a blend between the two, some would argue. But I like to just, I personally think it more of like a, yeah, Karl Marx, because he dies, right, immediately after sharing his dream and this vision of a world with where men can no longer rule over animals, you know, where animals are free of man's tyranny. Um, and he ignites a movement and he gets into people's head, right? And then ultimately he dies rapidly. So that's it. He's just in the first chapter and then he's gone for the rest of the book. But he is this ideologue. He is this prophet of this movement, you know, and um, the story unfolds that way. Then, then um, the strongest believers of this movement uh, being... Um, Sorry, Napoleon. Napoleon, Napoleon and Snowball, um, uh, well, embrace it and make it their own. Uh, it, it's their plan. It's their new identity. It is their movement. It is their revolution based on these ideas of this deceased philosopher, uh, thinker. Um, so it's a very, very cool book. And then it's it's a revolution, you know, and so I think it's really important that we, we, we if we think of all the revolutions, you know, a revolution is one full turning, right? So if you think of the definition of the word revolution, and that is to, to turn around like 360 degrees and to end up where you started. And so I think that's one of the concepts or one of the major uh, ideas in the book that Orwell wanted to portray that 
that revolutions, um, well, they happen throughout history, but ultimately they always end where they began, right? So um, quite possibly the, the oppressed rise up against the oppressor and they overthrow the oppressor. And then soon afterwards, uh, a select few of the oppressed um, or the leaders of the oppressed assume that same role of dictator or oppressor. And so I think this book's really fascinating, super interesting. Um, and it goes through, uh, you can ask maybe a couple more questions to help guide me through the overview of this book. But that's where it begins with Old Major telling about a dream he had about a more perfect world. Um, and he dies immediately after giving his message and sharing the first anthem of the book, um, which is just the music that unites the animals, um, kind of like a national anthem, you know? And then he, he croaks and then the rise, the, the rise is given to Napoleon and Snowball and they rise up to become uh, the guiders. Yeah, let me ask you this. Well, maybe for people that aren't literary majors like yourself, um, the book is known as one of the most powerful allegories ever written in modern modern literature. Can you can you explain to somebody in simple terms what is an allegory? Uh, no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm joking. Uh, it's it's still early for me, but yeah, an allegory is like um, an extended metaphor that uses um, another story to address uh, a current story. I, I think my wording is not very good, but basically we use, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, very extensive metaphor based on a, a, an existing story um, in order to make connections, right? To figuratively make connections to other events. Um, so that would be my definition of an allegory. Um, would you agree with that? Am I missing something? Yeah, I think that's the technical definition of like extended, a kind of like an extended metaphor that's so elaborate and and succinct that it becomes a, a story about or a, a story over a story. <clears throat> so I I see allegories as basically two parallel stories, and then the the primary story ends up ends up um, reflecting a secondary story, but they're not at all related in the sense of uh, maybe terminology, setting, time, place. Uh, so to use to bring it back to the text, right, we could say, like you said, that this people, most people consider Animal Farm to be an allegory of the Russian Revolution, but there's no, there's nothing in the book about Russian history and Russian people or culture. It's just, it's all about animals, right? There's no mention of politics from Russia. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, yes. So, Maybe a story some, some over a story. Some of mm. the activities that take place obviously mirror and reflect mm -hmm. the exact events that took place. And that's why it's an allegory of that particular war um, or revolution. Okay. Okay, cool. So thanks for clarifying that. Um, then let me, let me ask you this. So what happens in the book that's that's really significant or the, or the particular parts of it that stood out to you as, as, as moving or as impactful? Or why is this book taught um, as a text in high school, uh, middle school, whatever? Because I think that it, it points at the human, it's an analysis of the human condition, especially under large social groupings, um, uh, herd mentality, 
uh, we talked about spoke about uh, emotional contagion in the last um, podcast, and that also uh, plays a heavy, heavy role in a revolution, right? Is you get everybody to align emotionally, usually through fear, um, to overtake another faction or group of people. Um, but it has to be done with fear, right? Throughout history, if if you go through history, what we will find is that many cultures, most cultures need an enemy. I don't know why this is, but they need some sort of an enemy, uh, maybe to keep them together and keep them united to have this uh, specific enemy. But as you go through history, um, various, various stories throughout, what you see is the, dehum the dehumanization of the other. And so humans aren't gonna march in to a, a country uh, and kill uh, off the males um, or whatever, just for the sake of uh, gaining wealth. The majority of people won't do that because we have this goodness, this innate goodness within us, and we feel we all suffer and we all feel that. So we need to lie to ourselves. And so what we do is we start calling them, well, cannibals, um, terrorists is the new one, right? Terrorists is the, is the new uh, demonizing label. Um, but we have witches, uh, demons, um, uh, cannibals, A Asians. Wait, <laughs> yeah, like Asians, like <laughs> labeling. And what I mean by that is like <laughs> labeling like a bunch of people as one, one thing. And this, and then saying that, you know, they're, they're dirty, slopey eyed Asians, right? Like you can't tell yeah, me that hasn't happened. It just got us canceled within 10 minutes of the podcast. <laughs> right. Uh, and no, nothing against I, Asians, right? But in the in the Australian media, that that was a big thing, man. Like um a racism against Asians in the 80s, especially with the Vietnam, Vietnamese uh immigrants and them causing lots of uh just lo lots of conflict between the two cultures and just it's they're yellow the Asians, right? There was a yeah. politician, like he said. If they don't start to behave correctly or appropriately, we're going to send them back to the jungle where they, quite frankly, where they belong. Was a prime minister yeah, famous for saying that, or a politician? I mean, that is that is so dehumanizing and so degrading to a, a massive group of people. And you're absolutely right. That's actually a good example. Uh, besides the fact that it's going to get us canceled immediately. Uh, that is a, a great example because <laughs> you, we do say Asians and we do consider them to be one group of people, right? And pardon me, but I, I do want to go through some of these stereotypes like yellow, slanted eyes, rice farming, blah, blah, blah. And that's just so inaccurate, right? It is so inaccurate. Uh, it reminds me of the United States. So during our colonization, you know, the, the Indians, well, the American, sorry, I should say the indigenous, the uh, Native Americans um, were grouped into and stereotyped into the Reds. They were called the Reds, right? And their depiction was always with a feather in their headband, right? Some face paint, shirtless, grass skirted, with an axe, right? And you see that shit to today. If you ask my students and you show them a picture of a stereotypical uh, Native American, they'll just say, oh yeah, it's an Indian. But even they know that Indians come from India, not the United States. 
but it doesn't matter. The information, the stereotyped uh, icon is already out there. And the saddest thing is that really less than 10% of less than 10%, maybe less than 5% of Native Americans actually dress like this. You got to remember the United States is cold as fuck uh, in the winters. I mean, the northern parts of it are extremely cold. So they were wearing full clothing. They were fully regalia, right? They were fully dressed head to toe, um, unless you were down in like the south during the summer, right? So it's amazing. And there's so many different societies within the Native American experience, man. There's, I would say hundreds, I would say hundreds, but documented, we have maybe 30, 40, 50, 30, I'd say 30 at least, right? Like just in the West, right? We have Seminoles, we have Navajo, we have Pueblo, we have, oh God, it just goes on and on. Where I'm from, Alaska, we have Inuit, which is the Northern, the, 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 um, the uh, Clinket and Haida, which is the Southern, uh, and they speak different languages. They have different cultures. They eat different foods. They dress differently. Their music's differently. Their religions are different. Yet, just like as in the Asians, we grouped them into this mass and we called them violent, right? We, they were all violent. They were all one against us. So that became the common en enemy. Yeah, so that's great. Yeah, maybe a good example in the sense of, you know, thinking that this, this homogenous type all in one. But let's go back to the text and maybe take a step back and, and say, okay, the, the setting's on a farm. It's a bunch of animals. Um, old Major gives this speech. He's meant to be a representation of Karl Marx and, um, and basically communist ideology. They get indoctrinated by this ideology or the ideas that, you know, they, they should have freedom, uh, especially from their oppressors, because they're kind of like the, the serfs or the slaves, right? The peasants. They're working and toiling and they're not getting any of the butter and they're not getting any of the, the produce that they're producing. The farmer's taking it all. And that's a beautiful, actually a beautiful allegory for a, a king and serfdom, I think, right? So, you know, usually a king has land and um, people work on it and they never own the land and they just work on it. They tell the land, they pay taxes and they never own anything. And they just, they're sort of, it's just slavery, really. Anyway, they, they decide from that point, they're inspired. So what do they do? after that um well they you mean from after with their inspiration within your ideology what are they what are they inspired to do uh they're inspired to well overthrow the king right who, i mean who is and the... mr jones is the human on the farm he is the farmer and i don't know if he's completely evil or bad, but I know he's alcoholic. So he is neglecting, like neglectful, if that's a word, towards the animals. Uh, he, he forgets to feed them and um, they just start to go hungry and he just blows them off, right? He does not take that into account and take it as a serious thing. He's like, oh, I'll just feed him tomorrow. Mm. And all of this is fuel for uh, Napoleon and Snowball's movement, which is to overthrow Mr. Jones. And they start referring back to um, Old Major or Marx about a, a more an equal society where everyone's equal and the oppressor is brought to his knees, um, and so that's where it all begins. And you get this this beginning of this storytelling of this enemy that is a human, and they use persuasive techniques of so many kinds. 
to 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 de to defame to defame Mr. Jones. And one of the things that I, I, I'm, I'm not sure it's Snowball or Napoleon, it's, well, they're together at this point, uh, but they say that man is the only creature who does not produce anything but consumes everything. And that this is unfair and unjust and uh, they need to be dealt with. They need to be handled because it's not fair. There is a better life waiting for us on the other end of this uprising. Um, follow us and we will lead you to the promised land of milk and honey, right? These are the promises that are being made by Napoleon and Snowball to the other animals. Um, but it's very interesting as we grouped, let's say Caucasians, Africanoids, Mongoloids, whatever, um, in the, the farm is actually a good representation of this. So you have the pigs, right? And then you have the various animals representing different uh, class structures, but we'll get more into that. Um, but that's what they want to do with it. They're going to use that information and then they're going to find uh, the events that they need to inspire this anger and hate towards Mr. Jones. And that's when Mr. Jones slips up and forgets to milk the cows, putting them in pain and forgetting to feed the people. And by then uh, the people are hungry, they're desperate. And I think Napoleon Snowball sees this opportunity. Yeah. And it's kind of like, a lot of revolutions against the monarchy, look at the French Revolution, are based upon people suffering, right? There's not enough food, there's not enough bread, um, conditions, living conditions are really bad. And they see the monarchy uh, change from someone, a patriarchal system that is caring and, and, <clears throat> and paternal into a very egoistical, selfish system of, um, of depravity and just just taking right just absorbing the wealth from the people they just become like economic leeches so of course and that builds resentment and that's obviously the the fuel the inspiration for uh, before a revolution um right so they they have the revolution they th this is the cool bit right they they have the they have the uprising on the farm right the, all the animals they get together and they they organize it right <laughs> they kick the shit out of mr jones don't they and they boot him out of the farm yeah, they do. And it's important to, to know that they don't talk about revolution at the beginning, because I think a lot of people know that revolution usually is really bloody, like really bloody. Mm. And so they call it a rebellion. And so here's wordplay, right? There's play on words like, oh, it's just a rebellion. It's an uprising. It's not a revolution. We're not here to kill people. You know, we're here in peace, but primarily in the name of justice for all. And so they use the word rebellion. So yeah, it's the rebellion of the cow shed or something like that, the store shed. Yeah, and maybe that's they, a very clever technique, but used by Orwell um, in the sense of using a word that is kind of synonymous, kind of the same, but intentionally not being the not being the same. So, but the outcome and the actual it mirrors something that is way more violent, right? Because as you said, a revolution usually is is a taking of power and command. And usually there's um, lots of violence and it ends, uh, yeah, it ends with a lot of death, right? So I think that's a great, great point. There's a lot of really interesting, powerful language in this text. Uh, you know, I'm gonna let you guide me through it because it's been a while since I've read, read it. And while you teach it, it's fresh in your mind. I'm gonna use, I'm gonna be inspired by that. 
Okay, so they have the revolution, and it's called the rebellion. It's not called a revolution. They remove Farmer Jones, and then what? I guess the other thing too is that you said there's like class structures, right, in the in the farm. So who's at the top of the hierarchy in the sense of uh, intellect and power, and and what what does it go down from there? Well, Orwell depicts the, the meetings, right? So they have regular meetings, but even during Old Major's speech before he dies. Uh, there is an image of a hierarchy already built within the farm. So old major is standing up on a podium. He's not on a podium, but let's just call it a podium. He's risen up above the people speaking down. Now the first row that shields him, the very first row, you know, front row tickets, bro, were all pigs. So it's only the pigs up in the front. And then you have that move backwards where the sheep are in the back, you have the horse, horses, and then the other animals, uh, the ducks, the birds, whatever, they're all lined up. But throughout the book, it is always the pigs in the front row. So there's a class division right there. Even though this whole movement is talking about um, equality, all animals are created equal, you see from the beginning, just by the positioning of people, who can hear better, who's more influential, who learns the most in a classroom, it's the front row. It's a very, uh, where do people want to sit when they go to concerts or basketball games or football games? The front row. What happens? You have to pay for those front rows because they're valuable. They're prestigious. They're really good. And the pigs have it from the get-go. There's like, there's no question about it, right? And so immediately you start to realize, and obviously the pigs are the ones who can speak well and eloquently. And uh, um, they basically are the ones creating the rebellion. And so um, eventually you said something about who are the intellectual elite, what well, would be the pigs, because as we move through the book, uh, pigs are allowed, they're given special privilege and access to education. So the pigs are taught to read and write uh, and all the other animals are not. Uh, so this is a very interesting pointing fingers from Orwell at education and how education is actually used to help create caste, right? The caste, the, the hierarchical class systems um, is done through education, you know, and the, the lower, the lower animals, if I can call them that, um, feel a little bad saying that, but to call them that are also educated, but in a completely different way. And not in a way that is liberating to the mind that is um, allows you for free thinking. No, it's just just to barely be able to read the laws that they end up creating. Um, and otherwise, the pigs just insist on interpreting everything for them. So they eventually you realize that the animals didn't learn how to read most of them. And that was an intended uh, decision on behalf of the elites, which would have been Napoleon Snowball, especially Napoleon. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so the, the pigs maybe represent the intellectuals, uh, politicians, people in power. Um, yeah, would you, was that is that a fair assessment, you can say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, because the pigs, as we go through, start to consider themselves the brain workers, right? So, they, they, they assign themselves the position of supervising the farm. And in order to supervise the farm and avoid Jones or the king from coming back, 
they must work at all times on strategy, thinking. Um, therefore, they, they cannot do labor because their job is more important than that. There's no farm without them in their eyes. Uh, and yes, so they have all this leisure time to read and learn new things. And um, this definitely represents um, royalty in those people of leisure, those people that have, they don't work, well, they do in their own mind, but they don't work like the masses do. They sit there, they they claim their royalty. They're you know they 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 suck off the fruit and the labor of the lower classes, and that gives them the time to manage their affairs, right? And so, on the farm, it's the managing of the farm. But if we think of uh, and and the defense and the managing of the farm, but if we think of uh, like kings, it's theirs is to yeah their promise is to make sure that their societies are healthy and protected from outside uh, enemies, you know? And so that's what they do. They sit in their castle and they plot ways to, to defend the, their, their land. Right. I've got this old Lichards document in front of me as well that I'm looking at. And there's, to be fair, and just, just to give our audience a bit of um, scope, I guess, there is Squealer as well. I remember him. Squealer represents the Soviet press, which Stalin controlled through his rule. That's interesting as well. And then there's also um, Minimus, a pig who writes propaganda poems and song praising Napoleon and Animal Farm. Minimus represents the takeover of art by propaganda in a totalitarian state that aims to control what its citizens think. But this guy is pretty good because it's got like, um, representing it's saying that all of the characters are very purposeful they have a very you know authors uh, a very strong intention being there like um molly the vain horse who loves sugar and wearing pretty ribbons in her mane uh she never cares much about the revolution but she just wants to feel good she abandons animal farm puts herself in service for another human well before the totalitarianism even takes hold on the farm molly symbolizes the selfish and materialistic middle class well, I don't think it's um, maybe to take the conversation in in the back to that previous question. What stands out to me about this book and and these you know connecting it back to the pigs is that the way that they use power, the way that they use language, the way that they exploit the lower class, like you said, that connection there with education and language, it's incredible. It's extremely unnerving. Like I, I feel like okay. You got people in power and they're intellectuals or politicians, and then they only educate their own, right? To control that knowledge and control that, you know, power within that knowledge. That's extremely, extremely uh, sinister and cruel, right? But it's maybe it's the, well, but it's also, you know, George Orwell is saying something with that, right? He, he's saying that control the education, you can control the, you can control the masses because the educated and the people in power are strong, critical thinkers. Like you mentioned, Boxer is trying to write his own name and he just keeps forgetting the alphabet from memory. Um, and then Napoleon and, and um, Snowball are educating all the younger pigs, right? So that they can basically maintain that circle of power. That's, that's super interesting. Um, so you have the goes a little bit further you know so as the story unfolds you start seeing how they're abusing their powers and one of the things that uh was one of the things for rebelling 
uh, one of the reasons was the the maltreatment of the animals. And if you remember at the beginning, the cow's udders are are about to burst, which means they're filled with milk. They haven't been milked properly and they're in great pain. And the pigs manage uh, to figure out how to milk the cows. And there's like five buckets of milk and the cows are at ease and everybody goes, oh, what are we going to do with the milk? And the pigs, you know, are like, well, uh, let's, we got work to do. So let's go to work. We need to, you know, this is our farm now. We're ownership. So let's go get to work. We're going to make this harvest better than ever. We'll talk about the milk later. After they come in from the fields, uh, they notice the milk's gone. And there's really not much discussion about it immediately. Uh, but one animal speaks up and says, hey, Mr. Jones used to put animal, uh, I'm sorry, milk into my mash in the mornings. I think it's the chickens or something. One of the animals say, but Mr. Jones used to share the milk with us. And the pigs are like, oh yeah, well, you can't do anything like humans because humans are the enemy and they're evil. But then at one point the pigs admit, well, actually we need the milk scientifically proven you know they use these terms these phrases it's proven that pigs require this nutrient right they don't say that only pigs require this nutrient because all animals could benefit from it they just say that pigs need this in order to think properly and to be healthy and be able to oversee their supervisory um uh, role of the, the farm and then as we go on you know that's not the end then there's the apples, right? The apples, um, the ones that are falling from the trees. Uh, and, and and the horses mentioned, oh, Mr. Jones used to give us apples uh, once once in a while, you know, not all the time. Uh, but the pigs said, no, 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 no. Yeah, it's been proven. Pigs need apples and milk, you know? And it just gets worse. And you see these people, like you were saying, leeching off the masses and hoarding the resources for themselves. Very fascinating. Yeah. Is it is it a warning that um, total power corrupts um, completely, holistically in some ways? Well, yeah, I think so, man, because, yeah, absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? I don't know who said that. Was that Kant or something like that? I don't know. Somebody said it. <laughs> some philosopher said it. Uh, <clears throat> but, yeah, you know, there's the scene when they first uh, oust Jones and company they go into the house and you see Molly, but not just Molly. Molly's there looking at, wow, how beautiful, all these riches, all these, oh my God. And then she, of course she goes right to the, the, the ribbons because she is vain. And, uh, but all the animals are looking around the house going, whoa, like even the horse, I think it was Boxer, sees the TV and he's like, wow, what luxuries they have. So all the animals are like, well, like, mesmerized right by these material this material wealth and the pigs are like all right everybody get out yep nope nope you cannot do anything that's human no sitting on couches no watching tv no doing this no doing that but as the story goes obviously the pigs also were intrigued by this wealth and they decide to move in to the house and have access to that comfort and that royalty so yeah i think it's a warning from orwell that even those that seem to be uh, that seem to have great uh, anecdotes and, and solutions for all the problems we have, once they get a taste of that power, they can't get away. Yeah, does that apply 
um, does that apply to kind of democratic, capitalistic type governments? Are we all corrupted? Let me just read this because I, I he's definitely critiquing totalitarianism, totalitarianism, right? In this, in that sense, um, in the sense of maybe looking at monarchies, maybe looking at governments that are being completely egoistic. Um, Orwell's underlying point is that the stated goals of totalitarianism don't matter because all totalitarian, totalitarian regimes are fundamentally the same. Every type of totalitarianism, whether communist, facet, fascist, or capitalist, is founded on oppression of the individual and the lower class. Um, this is the bit that I like. Those who hold power in totalitarian regimes care only about one thing, maintaining their power by any means necessary. Mm. So that's, that is the critique of what we see, I think, in all governments, right? In, in when they become these authoritarian, uh, totalitarianist, totalitarian type governments, then they become completely tyrannical um, under the guise of they're looking after the individual under the guise of pretending to be um, socialist or communist or caring, right? They're just maintaining their own power. Um, I'm not sure if that relates to democracy in a sense, but maybe it does in the sense that, you know, people will do, will do anything to maintain that power, but maybe there's checks and balances there to make it harder for them to do that. You know, like um, in the United States, you're from the United States, you, you have a system of government where the president can only be president for, what is it, eight years, yeah. two terms, right? Um, you know, whereas at the moment in Venezuela, it's just like Nicolas Maduro's like, yeah, I'm president. <laughs> and um, my opposition, I'm going to squash you like, I'm going to squash you like a bug, right? They, they barely, I don't think they even have an opposition. Um and I listened to the radio today and I was hearing something saying every healthy government has an opposition because they play a part of keeping the other side in check. Right. But it is, it is extremely scary that on the, in the world today, there are totalitarianist or totalitarianism today in, in governments like North Korea, or Cuba. And, you know, to, I'm sure there's a ton more that I can't think of right now. Yeah. And, I, I don't want to pick on Russia too much because I know we're already dealing with an allegory on them, but uh, they will do anything to keep their power and they will use laws to leverage that. So, uh, so basically there are laws in place when people take power, right? Because it's an ongoing process. And in the book, there's the seven commandments on the farm, right? So I'm going to get back to Russia in a second. But uh, let's just read those seven commandments to give more context to the listeners. Uh, number one, so the seven commandments, um, that word commandment is very important because it has um, connotations with the Bible, right? But um, we'll get back to that too. But anyways, whatever goes upon, number one, whatever goes upon two legs is an enemy. Whatever goes upon four legs or has wings is a friend. Three, no animal shall wear clothes. Four, no animal shall sleep in a bed. Five, no animal shall drink alcohol. Six, no animal shall kill any other animal. And seven, all animals are equal. So if you read those and you're one of the animals on a farm, they sound great. They sound like they're there to protect you, right? But laws are changed because like you said, they want to maintain their power. So let's get back to Russia and Putin. Uh, 
I don't know too much about Putin. Like, I don't want to get into personal stuff. But one thing I do know is that they wrote laws to extend. I think Russia also had like an eight-year term limit or, um, you know, and, and, and Germany as well. And then you have Merkel who stayed in there for so long, right? It's because they rewrote the laws. Check this but out. Look, I don't want to interrupt you, but I've got this here in front of me. Vladimir Putin's first and second terms, 2000 and 2008. So he's, he served for eight years. And then now, and then he's been Vladimir Putin, third and fourth terms, 2012 to present, which is 10 years and 133 days. So he's been in power as the president for so far for 18 years. I, you know, I'll let you continue to take that. Yeah, and that's the thing is you see he was... People liked him. People, he, I guess his first eight years, he did some good things for Russia, you know, and, and, and they kind of liked him, but they had this limit on service terms because, you know, the world's been struggling, trying to fend off uh, totalitarianism since this book or since the beginning of time, maybe. Yeah. Um, but then another prime minister or president comes in to serve and he only gets four years. And these are when the laws are rewritten. And then Putin is allowed to run again, which he wasn't prior to the rewriting of the laws. And why I think that's important to the book is because this is how the, the, the pigs create a society, right? You have, they have their song, Beasts of England, which could be relative or uh, you could relate it or analyze it as a, a national anthem. Right. It's a national anthem uh, that unites the animals. But then they have to write laws, right, to show that they're that that everyone's equal, that we are all created equal, like in the United States. Right. Uh, for life, liberty and justice for all. Um, all men are created equal in the eyes of God. Um, and so you get these stories and that's how you get your that's how you get your recruitment finished. You get the people to believe through creating laws that serve their needs, writing songs that unite them. But then as the book Animal Farm goes on, you see the laws start to be changed for the benefit of the ruling class, which is the pigs. And this is kind of what has happened in other Western countries like Russia, and I believe Germany. I don't think Germany, Mar Markle should have been able to run or be president as long as she was. Uh, but the new laws allow for that, right? So I think those are very important that Orwell is, he is, has such a good sense of human nature and uh, class classing of, of peoples. You know, that's that's a great point. And I it sort of breaks my heart, to be honest, because uh, another theme that we see in Orwell's text is, you know, revolution and corruption. And it breaks my heart in the sense of like the, the ideology of Che Guevara and, you know, reading his diaries and he was on the road, you know, with his, with his mate when he was like 20 years old, he was a young medical student and a doctor and he was seeing the corruption, the exploitation of Latin America went all around South America, you know, and just learned so much and, and matured. It was like a coming of age novel. It was very powerful. And then these ideologies of we, have a, a human responsibility to do better, create a better society, um, to be better humans, to not let governments destroy us, to not be exploited by world powers. And they forcefully, with Fidel Castro, uh, Fidel Castro forcefully take Cuba in a, in a revolution slash coup, a civil war, basically, and that they take power. And then exactly the same thing happens. The 
ideology just melts into the background. It just becomes dissipated and they they start saying, oh, we should do this and we're doing this. And, you know, we love Cuba and uh, these nationalistic anthems. And man, when I, I, I've been to Cuba three times, man. And every time you turn on the news and every second word is the revolution, the revolution. It's like, bro, the revolution happened like 60 years ago. You know, why are you guys still talking about the revolution? They're still holding on to this idea of, the revolution is king because it justifies the totalitarian, you know, tyrannical government that they've got to say, we should be grateful for who's in power now. And Fidel Castro, I mean, he was like a God, you know, he, he didn't hand over power. He had power for like 60 years. You know, I think the revolution was in like 59 or 50, 1957, something or 1960, something around then when they took power, it's was exactly the same, but let me just finish with this. And I'll share the air. Um, it says revolution and corruption is, is a big theme. The revolution in Animal Farm, like all popular revolutions, arises out of a hope for better future. At the time of the revolution, even the pigs are excited by and committed to the idea of universal and animal equality. So it's beautiful to have a revolution. The problem is when you get that power, are you really equipped to, to handle it? And can you really implement a system where it's not just about self-interest? It says Animal Farm shows how the high ideals that fuel revolutions gradually give way to the individual and class self-interest. Not even Napoleon planned to become dictator before the revolution, but as his power grew, he took more and more until his power became absolute. Is that just, is that just a, a warning for human nature? Are we just not capable to be in positions of power without us, without it corrupting the, the individual and self-interest. It's very rare that you see leaders being able to handle that amount of power. Yeah. And I'm not sure if that exact is exactly what Orwell was trying to do, but the book will stand, the story stands for itself. And uh, ultimately, well, I don't want to jump too far ahead in the book, but ultimately yeah, it all began with a great hope, a great desire for a, a better um, society for all, right? Where all are equal. And the pigs believe this, right? Even the porkers. So you have a different classes of pigs. Napoleon was, he had 400, 500 babies because he was a breeder, right? He's a special pig who is taken very good care of. Um, this is real in real life on farms. They're taken very well, uh, good care of. Um, they're provided great abundance of nutrients because their job is to procreate. And then their descendants are the porkers, right? So the porkers live one year. The boar, Napoleon, the, the breeder, will live a long life and be taken care of and live in luxury in comparison to the other animals. Uh, because even his descendants, the porkers, are raised for a year and then sent to the slaughterhouse. Right. So the pigs themselves being aware of this know that, yeah, they too truly desire a better society for all, not just for pigs. But here's a here's a question to you. What was Che Guevara's role in the Cuban revolution next to Fidel Castro? I don't think he was even there, was he? Oh, he was he was definitely involved with the movement, which with the movement, yeah. But actually, on the boat going to Cuba, I don't know if he was actually there. 
But once I, I'm not sure, I'm gonna look that up. Um, but he, and, they worked together, correct? Like, right. They, they he, had yeah. So he, he became friends with Fidel Castro, and then basically yeah. it was their ideology that connected them because he's from Argentina. He's not from Cuba. And then, and then once he got power, once um, they had the revolution, and then he's he's main he's main purpose was to basically go around the rest of the world and create other revolutions so people could be liberated. And that was his purpose. But um, Fidel Castro, from what I've read, put him in a position of power where he was he was um, he was taking care of the people that dissented and was kind of rebelling. And he was in, in control of like uh, prisons and, and like a military camp. And apparently he executed like people say 20, 30,000 people. Right. He, Ooh, he, che? Che, Guevara, Fidel? che Guevara. They That's what they say. Um, and people have, I haven't, I haven't read it. So I'm, I'm saying that I've heard other academics say that that's fact. Um, but I, I I'm not sure. Um, and that's because I was under the impression that you see, like, if we look at this revolution in Latin America, who would be our old major Simon Bolivar, right? right? Comple completely. So then you have snowball and Napoleon. And from my understanding of the Cuban revolution, revolution is that we would call Fidel Napoleon and then um, Che would be Snowball because Che and Napoleon are working together to, to keep this revolution, to ignite this revolution. But there comes a splitting moment where Fidel Castro, they come to disagreement on some terms. And I'm not sure exactly what it was, but Che was a doctor. And he, he really wanted to help and to heal. But at some point, even though this story is convincing, right? This revolutionary story is convincing that even the pigs believe it, like Che. But then at some point, Che starts to realize that this is not exactly what he was intending to do. This is not the revolution he wanted. No, it wasn't supposed to be one man, Fidel Castro, you know, imprisoning people, oppressing people. And then they divided and yeah. he was chased out of the revolution and then demonized by Fidel Castro and company. So this is very, very important. If I'm wrong, I apologize. I, sh I will do more research on this, but I'm pretty sure something like this took place. Uh, che started questioning Fidel saying, hey, I don't know if this is what Bolivar wanted, if this is what we really wanted. And the moment you oppose, like Snowball starts opposing Napoleon starts asking questions, starts saying, no, 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 this revolution, because you see Snowball really wants all the animals to benefit. He really does. And uh, he doesn't want to be corrupt. Uh, he's willing to fight and die for, for the people, um, and like a Che. But eventually, what happens? Napoleon uses his new secret police to chase him out of there. Um, you know, his secret police were the dogs that he stole from the, the dogs on the farm when they had a new litter. He took them and trained them. He promised to to educate them. But he, really what he was doing was creating an, a security force. And eventually, Napoleon, the power is too much. He wants absolute power. He doesn't want someone there. And notice that in the book, and also in Latin America, people start championing uh, Snowball and Che, right? They start thinking, ah, oh, Che is I love this guy. He's a doctor. The Motorcycle Diaries, he actually went and helped people all throughout South America. This guy is awesome. Fidel, yeah, Fidel, right on, buddy, right on. We like Che. And so this is happening in Animal Farm. 
And they're like, oh yeah, but Snowball, but Snowball did this, but Snowball did that. Snowball was a hero. He got shot. Yeah. He fought. He led the rebellion. Uh, doesn't matter. He goes from hero first class to enemy number one just yeah. overnight. And they chase him off and he never comes back. Okay. So anyway, sorry. I no, just no, had no. to get that in there because I feel like there's, this is what's so beautiful about this book. Orwell was a fucking genius. Excuse my language, but I, I think he's a genius. And there's more reasons than just this beautiful allegory, not just of the Re Russian Revolution, but to human nature and the, the, the search and accumulation of power and how it corrupts people to a point where their best friends, they can just ostracize and even kill. It gets so radical that sometimes these people are actually killed, right? I mean, Napoleon puts a death sentence on Snowball, but Snowball's now in exile and never returns. Yeah, um, kind of like Che Guevara, Guevara as well. Exactly. Yeah, I think, I, I think that was a great, great connection and very true. And I, I think that's exactly what happened is with Che Guevara, like this happened over a period of years. It didn't happen overnight. You know, Fidel Castro got power and then Che Guevara, they were friends and they were talking ideology and, and ideas. But running a country is not the same as an ideology. Running a country is um, implementation of practical global trade and, and managing people and distributing resources. It's And it's it's very easy to be corrupt if you're thinking about yourself. And how would you not get corrupted if you are now the king of a new, of, of, a, of a complete country where you have access to a military, you have access to um, property and resources and the fishing and, and food, you know, all of it, like the milk, right? And I think that's exactly what happened with Che Guevara. He just was probably really disenchanted and dissatisfied with the Fidel's handling of power, uh, but being a dictator. And then, uh, yeah, he just got pushed out, you know, slowly go down here and take care of this. And um, he probably just, he, he probably just had a decline into moral depravity in, and, and doing things that he didn't expect that he'd ever do because he wanted to maybe maintain that connection with Fidel until he completely probably lost himself you know, lost himself along the way because of power being completely corrupting. But what a shame, man, because what he, why is he still on? I have a t-shirt with Che Guevara on it. I bought it in Cuba. You why can is see he them all over Thailand? Che yeah. Guevara's all over Thailand. He's like that picture of him with the hat and looking, he's like long hair and looking into the distance with this look on his house is like being a visionary and, and looking, um, you know, thinking about dreams and, uh, and 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 maybe purpose whatever is the most one of them I think one of the most sold pictures printed in the world, but for what he was and the ideals of what life should be like and what government should be like, I think he had something really beautiful through those through that that ideology and reflections. But I think what he became was completely. I was gonna. I would even go as far as saying the complete opposite. And and went into um, complete ethical moral decline. So yeah, he was shot, man, by the Bolivian army. Some soldiers in that he was doing guerrilla warfare, trying to um, start more revolutions, and he was captured and, and executed. And then, as you said, Fidel Castro was like they basically um, villainized him, demonized him, and said, "Ah, oh, he was a bit of he was a failure after all. He wasn't really a revolutionary like like us." So, yeah, Snowball and Napoleon, man, all over again. Yeah, and that's why I think this book is so important because 
I think it's a, it's an allegory for the human class, like, uh, well, just revolutions throughout humanity, right? I, I, I think that the Russian revolution is so embraced just solely for the fact that it was a massive tragedy, uh, a horror that took place during uh, Orwell's lifetime. So it was tangible, right? It was accessible to anyone who would have read his book. Because by the time he writes his book, the Americans are still scared of this Russia, right? The whole world is. Europe is like, damn, dude, Russia is scary, right? Um, we got to like really um, keep an eye on them. Don't really upset them too much, but let's monitor the situation. Um, but it was so accessible because even the Russians, you got to remember the Russians even were in conflict with the Japanese at the beginning of the revolution, the king the actual king before the Bolsheviks took over um, was going to war, trying to win little wars to win over the love of the people, right? And they go to war with Japan over Korea. Okay, so this is very important history. Now the whole world's involved. China, Japan, Korea, uh, the Mongols, um, all of Europe, the United States are watching Russia, right? This is like, Holy shit, what's going on there? And so this is why Orwell uses that. But I think at the same time, we can use these characters just like we did with Latin America, right? Just like we did with Che and Fidel. And it's so interesting, right? Um, so universal, so universal. Yeah, I love, I love as well this connection between language that you mentioned as well, talking about language as power. Animal, Animal Farm shows how the minority in power uses vague language, propaganda, and misinformation to control the thoughts and beliefs of the majority in the lower classes. What, what stood out to you in this text as kind of the most confronting or, or just kind of like universal truths? You know, what is it that impacted you or made you kind of reflect on, on human nature that was an insight that maybe you hadn't thought about as deeply until, until now? Um, well, you know, I've always known about the magic and the power of words. And this is where Squealer comes in, right? Uh, they say of Squealer that he's a magic maker, that he has the ability to turn black to white. Okay, so this is a very important metaphor. Um, and what that, I mean, what what is black and white? They're opposites, right? They're They're opposites of the spectrum. So to turn white to black means he was so convincing, right? And it's interesting that the laws are written on a black tarred side of the wall and the words are written in white. But Squealer has the ability to change people's minds on a dime. He has 180 degree about face turn with his words, right? Um, so I think it shows the power of words. Um, so that's one thing that sticks out to me uh, for sure. But one of the most important aspects of this book is the ignorance of the farm animals, right? They're, 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 they're all through the book, they have this uh, vague memory of that things that were different as the laws begin to change. They're like, wait a minute, we and let's say the ostracization of snowball, wait a minute, he fought hard. Wait a minute. He, and then all of a sudden the sheep, right? The noise, four legs, good. 
two legs, bad, like will come in and interrupt the thought process of the other animals. And then Squealer will come out and say, no, 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 no. Snowball was working with Mr. Jones. And the animals are like, really? That's weird. I don't believe it. But well, if Squealer says so, I guess it's got to be right. You know what I mean? And so he has this ability, the power. And not only that, there's also this educational factor, like the ability to read, write, understand, critically think, innovate, right? Uh, one of the things that gets Snowball thrown out is that all the animals love Snowball. He has this infrastructure plan, right? Which was going on in Russia too. How do we industrialize Russia? Uh, he has this infrastructure plan, uh, which was Lenin, kind of like a Lenin plan, like let's turn this into an industrialized there. Anyways, it's the windmill. So in the book, the windmill is such a focal point of this corruption, right? And Snowball has this idea of giving electricity to the farm so the animals get to work less, blah, blah, blah. And Napoleon immediately is, is opposed to it. And then he has him chased off and then he institutes it himself. So he takes credit for the windmill idea. But back to education, man, I can't find it at the moment and I will find it before the day is through. But if you read Animal Farm out loud in a class setting, uh, especially it's got to be done out loud, I think. Um, you will start feeling your tongue twisting and tongue tied. You will start losing your rhythm regularly throughout the book. And I found about several, seven, eight, sorry, several, seven, eight uh, different, different grammatically incorrect sentences and one is the which i was looking for is the one where all of a sudden towards the end of the book you can see the pigs actually start wearing human clothes and then there's one that's supposed to be past continuous anybody knows this even if you don't know grammar and you just read the sentence it is wrong and this happens throughout the book and what he's doing is making us question our reading ability I mean, he does this. I'm not just pulling this shit out of my ass, dude. It's throughout the book. And I, I started, like, I read a lot of it to my students because I didn't have a good audio. So I, it started happening to me. And I was like, what the hell? And I just didn't say anything. I thought maybe I was just, like, kind of stupid. <laughs> and then other students were saying, man, this is like a tongue twister. I don't know why he writes so weird. And I, so I was like, you too? So I started looking, and I found many cases. And Orwell, don't forget, was an English teacher. Okay, he was a teacher, he was a tutor, he was a journalist. He is a master of wordcraft. He is not making his mistakes on accident. Plus, it's been edited. Uh, he did it intentionally to make the reader feel lost, confused. Wait a minute. Does two, e two plus two equal four or five? Like weird shit like that. And he does it throughout the book. So it's words or power, right? You have Minimus writing these poems of praise with beautiful metaphors of Napoleon, this grandiose savior of the farm. Um, okay, I'm I'm going on tangents here, but I did want to talk about the power of language. And Orwell's so brilliant that he puts the reader into a lot of discomfort intentionally to ask you, are you ignorant? Can you read good enough? <laughs> it's very powerful. I Yeah. I'll find it. I'll find more of it and I'll put them in the, you know, whatever the comments mm. <laughs> or I'll, I'll bring it up later, but yeah. So yeah. what about you? What, what do you feel like? What, what was the most important illuminating 
um, I guess, experiences of this story did you have? Like what like kind of opened your mind? Like what the hell? Like, yeah, that's let me let me before I talk about that, um, let me just expand a little bit on what you said, because I think it's super powerful was the fact that the the lower class animals couldn't critically think so vulnerable to exploitation and manipulation could not reflect and then they were always being manipulated through the power of language right as you said you know catchy phrases grammatically incorrect you know alliterations jingles adages axioms whatever all stuff that sticks and you know we people you know we we believe our governments right we want to trust in our governments and we want to feel like our government is taking care of us. Uh, and the other thing too, is just, just the reality is that most people, you know, we, whether you're on a farm, literally an animal or a, a working class person, bro, you are going to work and you are busy toiling the soil and busting your back and your balls. You haven't got time to go and investigate and research and, you know, critique Putin or anybody else or any government, because quite frankly, you're exhausted. Right. So I think this is real human element of, okay, we, we're manipulating the people because, okay, they're uneducated, uh, you know, intentionally. So that reminds me to be honest of the United States, like how the hell do you make university degrees so freaking expensive right? And deter people from getting educated. And then the people that do get educated, they're, they're perennially punished for years and years with a really high credit credit loans and debt. I'm like, you are making it really hard for people to become educated. And I don't think that intention is for people to be, um, for the government to control the people. I think it comes from a capital, uh, like a stem of capitalism in the sense that it's a business. So if you want it, you got to pay for it, right? It's not like we want everybody to be dumb. It's just like, hey, nothing's free, man. If you want it, that's what it costs, right? It's that simple. But it's, you know, when you when you deliberately create hurdles for people to be educated, then you um, create a different type of person, right? That, that person is um, is, is, is more limited. And I'm talking out of my own experience because I've gone, I went through the first 28 years of my life without being university educated. And then at 28, I went to university and I did my first degree. And my perspective after that first degree was, was widely different because I just had a lot more information to draw from to make decisions. Right. And I was able to teach myself stuff. So I learned how to be an independent thinker. And learner. So I feel like I've been uneducated and I feel like that I've become more academic as I've, you know, went to university for four and a half years after that. So, yeah, I think that's a really, um, really confronting man and manipulating the, the manipulating the masses. And I guess to answer your question, bro, it would probably be that it would be the, the cruelty and the self-serving interest and the egoism and this apathy and even disdain towards the lower class, uh, you know, this, the, the lower class or from the higher class to the lower class more specifically. And then how they were just so effectively able to control society using propaganda 
uh, using the power of language. And I think it was extremely callous. And if you lived in a society like that, whether it's Cuba or North Korea or, or even Russia, it's kind of like, it's harsh, man, where, you know, you, you want to stand up for gay people. Guess what? You're going to fucking jail. You know, you, you want to criticize the government. Guess what? You're going to jail. You want to, you want to protest. Guess what? We're going to beat the shit out of you and then put you in jail. Right. That's the, cause what is, what is the reality of this? Right, bro. What is the reality of this? What is the reality of a totalitarian totalitarianism in, or, or a tyrannical dictatorship is that you better obey because if you decide to, to go against the, the, the prestige, the beautiful, the revered revolution, that's the word, then you are not one of us. You're one of them and you deserve to, to rot in, in, a, in a jail. And that's pretty scary because, you know, someone's telling you what's right. Someone's telling you what's wrong. Someone's telling you what you can do. Someone's controlling how much you can, it's control and order. And it's just very, very callous, man. And it's very, um, very, very applicable to what we see even within like in inverted commas, modernity. It's, it's, it's very confronting. Yeah, it is. And you're right. Like about the education system, it is uh, in the United States, it is a system that is, it's way too expensive and it forces the majority, right? First of all, they paint the picture of education that it is the hope and the redeemer of the, the lower class. Right, it is the way to move up the ladder, uh, but what it does is it puts you in debt. So immediately, uh, you are you are graduated from college, and you are set on a path of paying back your debt, um, and it can take years, and and it kicks in pretty fast. So you can't wait for that one job. You know, you can't like apply, apply, and just wait for that one job that has to do with your degree. No, you got to start working right away. You have to start working right away to pay this stuff back. And it could be at a grocery store, right? You just start somewhere and you keep applying. Um, but the interest rates are so high and it's, unless you're making like max payments, there's no way to really pay these things down. And so what it does is it creates this endless cycle of stress, anxiety, which kills creativity and innovation immediately. So it really subdues these people like, uh, that are more concerned about paying off their debt than building their dreams, right? Because that you have to pay that debt, it will haunt you. And th that's the way the story goes. So it's really sad. You're right. It's unfortunate. Um, and I'd go even further and say that the quality of these education is now going down big time. So you're still having to pay more than ever for a lower quality education, right? In the United States, you've heard of a uh, critical race theory, uh, that would be something for a whole other conversation, but I'll touch on it for the for the sake of this, this, this uh, focusing in on the use of education as a class structure builder, right? F built really for the elite uh, to, to help, con it's social control. It really is social control. Um, but if you think of critical race theory, <laughs> uh, just as an animal farm, uh, the pigs are re-educating the animals in different ways or just working their asses off so they have no time to think. They're just exhausted all the time. They don't have enough food to think. Um, 
but they're erasing the past, right? No, 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 Snowball wasn't a hero. No, no, he got shot on purpose. So they're changing the past. And that's what you have to do when you overrun a society or a group of people. You have to control their thinking. You have to erase their past, build a new story, create new songs, new laws that convince these people um, that it's good, but also to, to make them resent the life that they had before. So back to critical race theory in the United States, uh, there's a huge fight about it uh, over it. Like, Parents from all sides, it doesn't matter what political affiliation you have, are fighting this because what is teaching children is that our nation, um, well, some of it's true, you know, but that doesn't matter. It's the light you look at it at. Um, but that uh, all of our institutions are racist. Um, our forefathers were racist. Um, you are oppressed. And because of the color of your skin, you have been put into these things by white oppression. That's a, a really bad nutshell, but that's the truth. So what does this do? Parents are complaining that kids are now rebelling against them. Like, oh, you supported the oppressors. Like, wait, what? Wait, 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 we have a story, okay? And it's true. The, the, the Europeans came over uh, to the Americas desperate from oppression from their own countries and they found an, an escape route and someone was probably telling some pretty damn good stories about milk and honey in america and so people were going and um <laughs> bad things happened but that story and they're trying to like erase these stories just do away with them because it's evil it's all racist so we got to start over uh, they're tearing down monuments they're changing the name of schools remember animal farm what manor farm so it's Manor Farm. They rename it just like Russia became the Soviet Union and then it went back to Russia just as Manor Farm, Animal Farm became, sorry, Manor Farm became Animal Farm and in the end it gets named Manor Farm again. So this is the controlling of names. And you find this throughout the Bible as well. God constantly renames people because one of the problems is, is that people want to build a name for themselves, right? And so he says, no, 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 no. Once you start trying to build a name for yourself, you're forgetting your connection to God. So God goes throughout the Bible and renames Jacob to Israel. Uh, oh, I can't even think about it right now. So many different namings. Jesus renames Peter. Uh, sorry. Um, shoot, sorry, I'm missing it right now. But Peter was Simon. Sorry, his name was Simon, right? So we call him Simon Peter, but he's he's St. Peter. He's Peter. Jesus renamed him. He's like, this is how you are renewed. So this is happening in the U.S. We're trying to renew things. We're removing George Washington uh, Elementary High School or um, whatever, Thomas Jefferson Library. We're changing all those names because they were slaveholders, right? Uh, so they're trying, critical race is kind of like trying to erase our memory of the past. Now, remember, those that don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. So to make an effort to make us forget and to ignore those truths about America's history, well, would you just allow for an opportunity to repeat that same horrific, tragic event that took place in history, the enslaving of African-Americans, um, the killing of Native Americans, et cetera, right? So that was kind of a long tangent. Sorry about that. Really? Yeah, no, it's all good. Yeah, I think critical race theory is, is super important. But let's get back to the book. 
and maybe this this will guide us a little bit i think is the other part that i found was extremely confronting because i read animal farm when i was a kid i read it i think when i was like 15 and i didn't really get it uh, and then i read it at university and then i read it again about six months ago um, but when the and then when i read it the, the the final time the scene when the pigs you know the whole time was like you know four legs good two legs bad four legs good two legs bad the scene where the pigs come out and they're walking on their hind legs and i believe they're dressed in human clothes is that right right and at this point too yeah. they they're regularly drinking whiskey and <laughs> And doing deals with other farms and and trying to um, negotiate and barter and trade and use money and and you know at that point. But I, I just remember when they're walking on hind legs, I'm just like, oh my god, they've become the oppressors. It's as you said, the revolution. It's coming full circle. They've become uh, the the liberators. They're from the liberators now to basically the the, the people have got a new fresh oppressor that's just dressed in new clothes, but maybe these oppressors are even a bit more callous, a bit more cruel and a bit more subversive in, in many ways. That was really confronting. Like it was like, wow, that was powerful. It was a powerful. Well, yeah. Style. It's like they're just breaking all their own laws and rules. Right. So we have those seven commandments. Um, and there's a scene where uh, commandment number four, no animal shall sleep in a bed. But the other animals start to witness the pigs sleeping in beds and they question this. Wait a minute. What's going on? Right. And immediately they get shut down. And here comes Squealer, the media coming to, to, to smooth things over. And he says, no, uh, you guys sleep on a pile of hay. Is, a, is the hay not your bed? And the animals will. Well, yeah, of course it is. That's where we sleep. And he's like, exactly. A bed is just a place where you sleep. He's, he says, that's not what the law said. The, the law said, sleep in bed with sheets, <laughs> right? And so they have blankets. The pigs have blankets on these beds. But he said, no, beds with sheets. So now they can have blankets. And he makes them feel stupid. Like, is that not a bed that you're sleeping on, that pile of hay? And everybody's like, well, yeah, it is. And he's like, exactly. Yeah. And then he moves on. And the other law, no animal shall drink alcohol, right? And there's a scene where Napoleon and Snowball and everybody wakes up late and Napoleon's dying. He's fucking dying. And Squealer is disoriented and he's just like, oh God, oh God, uh, uh, looks sick. And he said, Major's dying. And his last rule is any, al any animal that is found drinking alcohol, it's punishable by death. But then all of a sudden that evening, Napoleon's making a speedy recovery. <laughs> he was just hung over, you know, that really bad hangover. And the next thing he's like, shit. And they start brewing, start allotting parts of the farm just for making barley for brew. Right. So, yeah. And then that law changes to no animal shall drink alcohol to excess. So they're adding, they're twisting all these rules. Uh, no animal shall kill any other animal unless they deserve it, like snowball, like drinking to excess, like acting like humans. But they become more and more like humans. And this is what's so beautiful, right? Everybody's confused at the end of the book. The animals are walking on two feet. They're drinking. They're smoking pipes. And in the very last scene, they're actually playing. They're gambling, playing cards with their human counterparts, 
Now, just for a quick background, those human counterparts represent different countries around the world, okay, that were in opposition and fearful of Russia at first, but then saw what what a good job you've done here. The people work for for nothing and they work long hours. Wow, you've really succeeded. So you see these countries like Germany, uh, other European countries starting to say, wow, this works, this works. And in the end, it's the pigs around the table. You got Mr. Jones, everybody's there. And a fight bursts out in both Mr. Jones or one of the other guys. I don't remember. I don't know if it's Mr. Jones. It might be one of the- I don't think he comes other... back from memory. Yeah, I don't think he ever it's, comes it's back like, either. Yeah, it's a, the it's other farms. It's the neighboring farms. Maybe, yeah. yeah, it's the neighboring farms, which are the border states, basically, that want to do trade with you again, even though you've done these terrible things. And the very last scene, the animals- go back are going back to their shed they're just so fucking baffled by what the hell has happened uh and a fight breaks out because napoleon has an ace of spades and so does mr pinkerton or whatever the hell his name was pilkerton they both have the same card so someone's cheating <laughs> right and this is the, how the book ends you cannot see a difference between the the pigs and the people um and Someone's fucking cheating. Who is it? Does it even matter? He doesn't say who's cheating because it doesn't matter. The fact is, is someone's gonna cheat. Yeah, and the, cor the corruption that. seeping into every facet of of their lives, right? Well, yeah, you know. Okay, so I might be going on a whim. Tell me what you think of this. But are we talking about a farm, or are we talking about man? We're talking about politics. Man, At that point, we're talking about politics completely. Man right? or farm? Oh, definitely. Man or farm? I, I definitely think that he's woven so much of the dark elements of our humanity in that text. He's, as you said, he's just got his finger on the pulse when it comes to understanding the flaws of humanity. So is it is it actually, or is the story really about farming or about man? I'm going to say it's about man. Yeah. And the name of the farm is man Manor. or farm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so he does this shit all the way out through the book. He is, has wordplay. He is such a genius. Man or farm isn't just a chosen name. Boxer is not just a chosen name. Snowball is not just a chosen name. What is a snowball? And what can a snowball do? Well, a snowball is a packed, solid, round piece of snow. And once it builds momentum going downhill, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Remember that everything after Squealer disappears, he becomes, sorry, not Squealer, my bad, Snowball. He becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, right? It's all going downhill. Everything's going downhill. And so the Snowball is getting bigger. Everything that goes wrong, that can go wrong, is Snowball. This lie becomes so big because of it the falling, right? You see a society falling down and this ball is just getting bigger, bigger, bigger. The cows are like, um, um, I'm almost certain that Squealer or Snowball came in at the middle of the night and milked us so we don't have milk. Wait, what? Oh, the windmill broke. There was a huge storm and thunder and wind like no one's ever seen. It was Snowball for sure. And everything that can go wrong becomes Snowball. Boxer, he's a fighter. He is the hardest worker. And he works himself to death. But 
he's just a boxer, right? Chasing a title, right? Of the hardest fighter worker. He is still ignorant as a lot of, uh, you know, laborers. I won't go down, I won't go down that way. Mm. Uh, but yes. Uh, and squealer is like that high pitch sound that you, you just, Oh God. Okay. 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 Stop. Stop yelling. I hear you. I understand. I agree with you. Anything for you to shut the fuck up. You know what I mean? And so manor farm animalism, right? We're talking about capitalism, communism, socialism. He uses all these uh, names to actually really define what we're dealing with, what we're talking about, right? So snowball is getting bigger as the society falls, as everything they dream for falls away, it's going down, the snowball gets bigger, the lie gets bigger. Boxer, he's a fighter, he really is, but that doesn't mean he's gonna save the world. Then you have Benjamin the cynic, We'll get into him some other time, but sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, and Napoleon, of course, right? Who was Napoleon? You know, one of the greatest dictators of all time. You know, someone that loved power. Isn't yeah, everything very intentional. Everything very intentional. But let, let's talk about Benjamin, the donkey. He's a representation of um, is it philosophy and skepticism, and maybe um, critical thinking or the academics that you know can see holes in the system, but. You were, were kind of just observing, not actually implementing change. Well, yeah, it's important to note that Benjamin has always been able to read, but you don't really know about that till the end, till he's helping Molly, not Molly, who's the other girl, Clover? Clover, he's helping Clover read the, the, the commandments because Clover keeps saying, what the fuck is going on? Like, I'm pretty sure that we already agreed that you can't drink alcohol, that you can't sleep in beds. So as she goes through, she is so uh, skeptical and Benjamin comes out and finally helps her. But what we know about Benjamin is he is kind of like a representation of like the older wise man, but very cynical. He's seen it all. He says, no one's ever seen a donkey die, but I've seen all of you die. He doesn't take sides he understands that a revolution will end where it began it will never be better at the end even after all those promises of utopic society uh and he's cynical because of this because he's seen too much he's experienced too much he understands too much about the workings of the world right um but does he ever take a side no so benjamin represents the scholar, the wise, the elderly that never stand up for what is right, right? Because we know that Napoleon is oppressing the shit out of these animals. They have way less food than they had under Mr. Jones, right? Yet the animals keep saying that they have more food. This is one of those confusing things where that Orwell creates confusion like, wait a minute, they don't have food. They're like in starvation. He keeps telling us that, but the animals keep saying that there's more food now than ever. It's not true. It's a straight out lie. And it causes conflict in the reader, reader's mind. Like, am I misreading this? Wait, let me go back. And you have to go back to reread all these things. And you're like, what? This is so ironic. It's, it's contradictory. And that's intentional. That's what the revolution is, contradictory to the promise of a utopic society. It never ends that way. Look at Venezuela. Look at Cuba. Far from utopia. And those people are literally hungry. Like, 
And just like people were serfs underneath the monarchy, literally hungry because there's not enough food um, that being distributed. There's not enough food, but being distributed amongst way- the yeah amongst the, the working class. Yeah, man. And there's a scene in the in the book where uh, Whimper Whimper is the human being, and he kind of like represents to me. I didn't find this like any kind of support for this, but to me, he's like the UN, the United Nations. At one point, they're hearing of infanticide, uh, suicide, starvation, and cannibalism on the farm, right? Because the Russian Revolution was so gnarly that, and any revolution, that people start starving, start, you know, there's not enough food. Like, people start killing their own babies to because they're just going to cry and die of starvation. You might as well kill the baby or have an, a, an abortion because you don't want them to be born into this society, right? Um, so... Can I, Whimper can I, comes in. Yeah, go. Sorry, I want to ask you about I was say, Moses Whimper next. Comes but yeah, in go and fills the silos with dirt. Right, he fills the silos with dirt, and then just put what little grain remains at the top of the silo. And so when Whimper comes through, you know, Napoleon and Squealer are like, no, 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 no. Those are lies. That is lies spread by Snowball and Mister Whoever or so and so. And then Whimper looks in and says, Oh, the silo's fucking full dude, Russia's doing great, or this country's succeeding, uh, which is a blatant lie. And he goes back and tells the rest of the world, nope, they're fine. They have enough food, right? So mm. he's kind of like the UN that's uh, coming in to make sure things are okay. There aren't wars against humanity or crimes against humanity. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, that's super interesting, right? Just, just being used as a manipulation tool. Um, tell me about Moses. Moses is meant to represent religion, and he talks... The, the, Moses is the the crow, right? He talks about sugar candy mountain. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So Moses is a very interesting character. He is a yeah. I I think he represents a priest, a religious figure. Mm. Uh, sugar candy mountain is their heaven. It is a place like you know when Moses took. Uh, the Israelites out of Egypt, they weren't even called Israelites then. But anyways, when he took them out of Egypt, he promised them the land of milk and honey. There is a land waiting for you. And we have this concept today of heaven paved in gold, where everybody has their own house, there's an abundance of food, everything's good all the time. So that's Sugar Candy Mountain. Um, Yeah, he represents the clergy at the time. And notice, as the revolution starts to take place, what happens to Moses? I can't remember. He disappears. He flees. Okay. He flees to a f- another farm. Not and remember, these farms represent countries. So he, he basically a lot of the clergy left. They knew what was coming. They saw what was coming, and they left. Right. Um, some of them didn't, and they were just outright murdered. There's this one father, uh, a priest that led. Um, a peaceful protest with serfs, farmers, and trying to get more food, right? And he came up and he all in peace and in the name of God, and he got mowed down. They all did. Like, I forget how many hundreds of people were killed, but totally slaughtered by Stalin's people. But the majority of the clergy left. So Moses disappears, right? I mean, give it, look at his name. He's obviously a religious figure, you know? Mm. Uh, he leaves. But when does he come back is maybe more important. So he's abandoned the people that he's supposed to be leading, right? 
uh, a religious leader should stand there in the face of advers adversity and and stand with God and unite with the people. But they leave. When does Moses come back? The first brew. So in the beginning, Moses is fed by Mr. Jones breadcrumbs and beer. I guess you you know you know this is interesting because in the Catholic Church we eat the body of Christ, which is made from grain, uh, which is like a cracker, which is like bread, and then we drink wine, right? Uh, and so this is Moses's nice life, and all he does is he tells these stories that unify the people, right? The elite don't like Moses; they they don't they think he's full of shit, but they like they like him being there to create order and tell stories on the farm. So he comes back at the first brewing, dude. All the animals can smell the brew of barley cooking. Ah, and here comes Moses fluttering back as if you're brewing beer, that means you are now in a state of excess, right? You have an abundance. Like, why would you not eat the barley? Which is a question of the animals. Why would you make beer? Oh, because we have so much food and so much grain. Well, let's put this grain to use and we'll make some beer. And here comes Moses fluttering back reclaiming his position as a uh, mystic and scholar. Yeah. And do, do you feel like in the text that there isn't the people like the, the farm animals need Moses, they need religion. Is that a source of motivation and a way of building resilience or is it, is it, I think I felt like when I read it, I can't remember. They were a little bit discontented. They weren't really buying it. I think they were, more involved with the revolution and and um, the ideology has sort of taken hold yeah so are you talking about the animals or the pigs or just the the, the low class let's say the working elements of let the working animals on the farm you have them so they weren't as much yeah. they were as influenced by moses and the and organized religion as much at that point i believe well it says at the beginning of book that moses was this uh speaker and the that some of the animals believed in Sugar Candy Mountain, but others did not really mm. believe, but they still appreciated the stories. Right. They still listened to the stories because they liked the stories that gave them hope, but they weren't true believers of Sugar Candy Mountain. So you have these believers and these non-believers, but even the non-believers are affected by this story. Yeah, that's, does that does that answer that for you? Yeah, it does because I think maybe it, it's it's sort of saying that we all, a part of us, always enjoys that connection and that faith, um, but sometimes if we're founded in you know rationalism or in propaganda, in this case, maybe that is um, that is it has more dominance and more sway. Like the political ideology is more powerful in that sense. So the religious. Uh, ideology is 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 kind of pushed down is deprioritized right so maybe that's a part of it whereas in other cultures maybe religion is number one and then politics are three or four yeah and i want to talk about one more thing uh which is the most horrific part of most revolutions especially the russian revolution because that's the kind of under the microscope but is the the killing that ensues so remember that there's a law that you shall not kill thy other the animal whatever um but somewhere around halfway or a little less than halfway through the book the killing begins and 
remember they put a death sentence on Snowball, which is breaking the rule immediately because he deserves it, of course. <laughs> He's too big. You got to destroy that guy. Um, and then you start having, well, first it's the four pigs that are drawn by their ears by the military police or the police, the dogs, the security dogs. And the dogs are now starting to attack. Remember the, the those porker pigs, the four opposed Napoleon. Um, they were in disagreement with him about the windmill and about other things. And he got upset and he never forgot that. He held that in his heart. And then Boxer keeps talking about stuff. People are having conversations and Napoleon gets fed up and he's like, okay, it's time to fucking lay the hammer down. And he goes out there with intent to kill. And uh, Boxer kicks some serious ass. He's a fucking fighter and he wins. He's stronger than anybody else. Um, and he wins. And there's this part where Boxer has the dog on the earth and he's going to crush him with his hoof. And he looks at Napoleon. And what is so important is that there's a pause. And then Napoleon changes countenance and says, put him down. So Napoleon was actually in fear. You, you can see him in fear like... <gasps> But then he looks at Boxer. Boxer looks at him and he goes, oh, yeah, he's just a fucking peasant. Put him down. And Boxer puts him down. Meanwhile, you got to remember, the whole security force is gone. Napoleon's alone. Boxer could kill him like this. But he can't because Napoleon is always right. He's our king. And he's scared of Napoleon for some reason. Um, super, super, super important. And then other animals start committing suicide by admitting things that are false they they've they, we we don't know why for sure but remember there is infanticide okay the hens are killing their own eggs because they don't want napoleon to sell them off those hens are murdered immediately on this day um a couple other animals start to come through over time start admitting the things they didn't do and i see this as an escape a form of escape this is so bad this is not what we wanted I'm fucking, fuck it. Yeah, I'm working with Snowball, me here. Yeah, I peed in the, the drinking water and all these people get killed. Um, so this was happening, like any type of descent, but not only any type of descent, but it becomes so desperate that even the people themselves are willing to commit suicide. And it, it's done like in the sense of admitting faults, right? They're so intimidated by Napoleon that they just admit to what he says. He's like, if you admit now, the, the sentence will be lighter. They admit, he murders. He tells them that, you, in a sense, you, you, know, you will be forgiven if you're strong enough to admit your faults. But the moment they admit their faults, he still kills them. So it's quite a fascinating thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, I've forgotten a lot about that. And that's the... What is that? The cleansing, the cleansing of a revolution, the cleansing of ideology, right? That you have, yeah, you have, we are this, this is our system. This is our system of thought. And anyone that wants, anyone that is a potential threat must be, must be either silenced or destroyed. Disappeared. Yeah. And that's, that's the truth of it is as they become more and more corrupted by their powers, People aren't completely idiotic. People are going to start asking questions. You know, people are start going to want answers. And if you don't have an answer for them, you know, if you're in any way, if a story can be built against you, you can lose your power somehow. 
And so he's willing, uh, absolute rulers are willing to go to any measure, right? Because they know that if they they are found out, they're most likely going to be killed, right? Like what's the alternative? Like what, they're not going to give them a vacation home in the Amps, you know, like. Um, so yeah, so the power is gained by violence and taken away by violence, you know, and, exactly. main and maintained with violence. And what else Napoleon's brilliance does is he, divides and conquers his own community so in the story he um he says yep napoleon has people working with him be weary my friends and keep your eyes open wide for the enemy is amongst us the enemy is at work right here right now now <laughs> that's the majority of the story is this this idea of revolution looking for a better outcome a better future for all which is really just a story that catapults it's a transfer of power a, a forceful deceitful transfer of power and uh it's really interesting though so uh is there any way um i know we're running short maybe on time but is there any way we can play that clip so i think this book is universal i think it applies to uh, many, uh, just the whole concept of revolution and the processes that take place and the unfolding that ultimately comes to light, uh, which is never really that good. Um, but in the, like, I don't know if this is making it too personal, but is there any way we can maybe discuss what's happening in the United States right now? Like this use of media, of divisiveness to turn people against each other? Or do you think that's a little bit too far-fetched for this conversation? No, man. Hell, man. Let's get into it. All right. Do you mind if I start by, uh, well, we all know recent U.S. history, right? So um, not too long ago, we had a really vicious, angry, terrible president named Donald Trump, uh, and he was hated by, um, well, a lot of people, so to speak, in in, in the West, um, in, in, in the United States, um, but especially by this, um, the Democratic Party and the, the left wing. Um, and so what I find super interesting is that since the transfer of power about two years ago, all that they talk about is Donald Trump. He's been gone for over two years. He's still the demon in the background. He is still this evil that must be fought. He's silent, dude. He doesn't do much. He's quiet. He's golfing, but he's still the enemy of democracy so if you don't mind i'm going to play this three minute clip of a speech by george, george uh, joe biden on september the 1st 2022 uh addressing the nation about an imminent threat within our borders keep your eyes open the enemy is amongst us all right so let's get into this really quick i think it's very fascinating because it's super divisive like well, I'll tell you at the end, but, oh, you've disabled sharing screens. I'm just looking for that right now. Sorry, let me do that. Multiple students can share simultaneously. Advanced sharing of 1%. Who can share all participants? Should you, Can you share now? Yes, they can. Okay. Okay. Please notice the, uh, well, the colors and everything. If you, you may have already watched this, actually. Can you see it? Yeah, I can. Very red. Make sure you say, share sound as well. Yes, I did. All right, here we go. Okay. Equality and democracy 
are under assault. Uh, but notice the divisiveness and notice the enemy amongst us. Okay, great. We do ourselves no favor to pretend otherwise. So tonight, I've come to this place where it all began to speak as plainly as I can to the nation about the threats we face, about the power we have in our own hands to meet these threats. Too much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. I know because I've been able to work with these mainstream Republicans. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And they're working right now, as I speak, in state after state, to give power to decide elections in America to partisans and cronies, empowering election deniers to undermine democracy itself. They tried everything last time to nullify the votes of 81 million people. This time, they're determined to succeed in thwarting the will of the people. We are not powerless in the face of these threats. We are not bystanders in this ongoing attack on democracy. This is a nation that respects free and fair elections. We honor the will of the people. We do not deny it. Blind loyalty to a single leader and a willingness to engage in political violence is fatal to democracy. So I want to say this plain and simple. There is no place for political violence in America, period. None, ever. I believe in the give and take of politics, in disagreement and debate and dissent. We're a big, complicated country. But democracy endures only if we, the people, respect the guardrails of the republic. Only if we, the people, accept the results of free and fair elections. Only if we, the people, see politics not as total war, but mediation of our differences. You can't love your country only when you win. The cynics and the critics tell us nothing can get done, but they're wrong. There is not a single thing America cannot do, not a single thing beyond our capacity if we do it together. The darkness of Charlottesville, of COVID, of gun violence, of insurrection, we can see the light. Light is now visible. Light that will guide us forward. The MAGA Republicans believe that for them to succeed, everyone else has to fail. They believe America is not like I believe about America. I believe America is big enough for all of us to succeed. And that is the nation we're building, a nation where no one is left behind. We can't afford to have, leave anyone on the sidelines. We need everyone to do their part. So speak up, speak out, get engaged, vote, vote, vote. We just need to remember who we are. We are the United States of America, the United States of America. And may God protect our nation, and may God protect all those who stand watch over our democracy. Equality and democracy are under assault. We do All right. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's I, I could hear that perfectly. It's so interesting. 
I wonder why there's this focus at the moment on the MAGA voters. Why is there this focus on the the people that are seen are portrayed to be extreme Donald Trump fans? What's happening there? You think? Well, they're in cahoots. All those Republicans are in cahoots with Snowball, and everything is Snowball's fault. Right. Everything, and he's amongst us. Keep your eyes open. MAGA workers are. Uh, in various states doing their workings, their biddings to destroy and undermine democracy. They are the enemy of the state. They are the enemy. Now you have to remember that Donald Trump won nearly 50% of the vote again, his second election. And he, you know, Trump uses these persuasive techniques. He, he, he reaffirms the idea that not all of you are Trump supporters, even though there were enough voters to say that they were supporting Donald Trump's policies and they wanted him back. So what do we do now? We have this party that really wants the, to change the Republican Party away from this I, these ideals that were set forth by Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump wasn't in biz, like business with the politicians. He was too rich. He didn't need their money. And oftentimes he told them that I gave you money to support you. And I've never accepted money and nobody could refute that. Um, but you have this speech, which is just like Napoleon in the beginning, saying he's noticed Biden is promising a better America for all people. Where no, everyone no, sorry, no, Napoleon or old major? Um, old major, old major, but Napoleon takes that story, right? Okay, as got soon it. As old major dies. Napoleon okay. starts to reiterate the story, to reaffirm the idea of a utopic society that will, will come if we take these steps. If you follow me, we will make everybody equal. And Biden says the same thing: equality for all. These people, like Mr. Jones, the MAGA Republicans, will do anything they can to win. And they do it by making other people fail. So here's Mr. Jones taking everything, right? And not leaving anything to the animals. And who's, who's Biden talking about? Well, he's talking about all the liberal left and the Democratic Party. But I feel like this Democratic Party is not the same Democratic Party it was before, right? It, I mean, I, I voted Democrat in the past, and I like a lot of dem, dem, Democrat ideals. Uh, but today, it's a much different, much more radicalized version of what it was. And again, the enemy is all around this one character, Donald Trump, who just wanted to steal from the Americans. You can ask anybody in the world. America and the rest of the world were benefiting tremendously under Donald Trump. Everybody was more successful. Everybody had more. And the moment that the power shifted, they had less. Inflation, COVID, rules. You do this. You follow these policies. If you're not, you're a traitor. You're an enemy. Uh, don't forget, Donald Trump allowed states to make their own decisions. So he wasn't a hegemonic figure. He wasn't trying to control everything. He was trying to follow the Constitution, which is to allow power to the individual states. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if that fits democratic ideals. They will say anything to discredit, dehumanize, and defame this man, this thing, who is, well, snowball. Right. The guy that came in with a great plan for infrastructure, building the windmill, uh, 
you know, and, and, and everybody should have fair rations was Snowball's ideal, but that was not enough for Napoleon. Napoleon started getting pissed off and people started to really like Snowball, just like people were really enjoying their lives under the Donald Trump policies. However, there is this story squealer. The media is in there saying, no, 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 he's evil. He's bad. He's bad. And they're turning black to white, right? The media is turning black to white. They're turning the truth into the opposite of what really happened. And so this is really crazy. You get this speech and basically he's using fear. Look at the blood red backdrop. I mean, come on, you got these Marines. You can't see their faces. What can you see? Just their glowing gloves. This is very like, dude, it's like Dark Vader shit. Uh, you know, it's really. I didn't really even divisive. see. I didn't even see the Marines. I just saw the red curtain. There was people behind him. Uh, yeah, yeah. I didn't even see that. To be honest, I just saw him, and I just saw ah oh, these silhouettes. Yeah, yeah I did see. I, they didn't even really register as as because that of that blood red background. I think the cut the imagery is so powerful because a threat red. You know, and then the flag. It, yeah, it's just it's just screaming at you, kind of fear. Um, but what's the purpose of like what's the purpose of demonizing this group of people? Like, okay, they they might have you know some of them might have done stupid things. Some of them are kind of maybe considered to be extremists in the sense of that they're super loyal and, and maybe a bit extreme in their devotion. But ultimately, they're just people that are very protective, uh, very passionate, and they feel like someone is is vocalizing, verbalizing a, a better way to live. Like, what's the purpose of attacking these people? Because even that this, this whole language of, you know, MAGA Republicans, and I've spoken to some Republicans, all this separation, what's the purpose of doing that? You know, is, is it, you're demonizing the whole group to saying that, how many people were violent on that day? Right. It wasn't like you had hundreds of thousands of people that were MAGA Trump supporters there with guns shooting people. There was violence, but it was very like 20, 30 people out of. Yeah, only only uh, I believe two people died or maybe one person died. And it was an innocent uh, woman, an unarmed woman killed by the, the Capitol Police. Um, so it wasn't violent. And under um, Biden and company, uh, don't forget the BLM protests, which were bloody, where hundreds of police officers were injured, uh, tens and tens were killed. Many innocent civilians were killed. Businesses were burned to the ground. And man, it's insane. There's no mention of this. And this was promoted by this party. Now, there's one one event that they talk about and in biden in the speech says there is no room for political violence yet during covid lockdowns blm was allowed to terrorize streets i mean it was incentivized was totally incentivized uh there, there were bricks uh de like delivered in the middle of the night to, to different areas right and then protesters would come out and there would just be a convenient bunch of bricks right there uh, where do they come from? I don't know. But back to your question, what is the point of this divisive speech? It is to create an enemy from within. It is social control. It is to inspire his followers who now are dissenting uh, his 
his programs, his policies, because the United States is doing so bad right now, financially, economically, immigration is out of control. Uh, the borders are open. There seems to be no control. And it's definitely not at the benefit or for the benefit of the people. So you have an approval rating that has never been seen before so low of any president, even by his own party. So this is that speech to say, hey, remember, I have your back. The enemy is not us. It is Donald Trump and his followers, Snowball and anybody that works with them. Um, so he strikes fear and hit the hearts of his own followers to make them remember, okay, 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 Biden, yeah, he's made some mistakes, but he really cares about this country and the democracy, right? And then it strikes fear into the hearts of the Republican Party. They're like, holy sh what is going on? No one's ever seen anything like this in U.S. history. And it is pitching the people against each other. Just like Squealer said, the media, that the enemy is amongst us working right now. And we need to weed them out and destroy them. So I was reading this book when all, I mean, the last two years have been insane, right? They've All they've done is tried to reverse everything that the prior administration had done under Trump. They've done it in the name of equity, equality, justice for all, yet everybody's suffering. There's no food on the farm. People don't have money anymore. $7 a gallon for gas? It was like two fifty under Trump, three dollars. I mean, that is the backbone is energy, right? Because if the the gas goes up, that's not the problem. The prices of food have to go up. The prices of paying employees have to go up. So these guys have been pushing social reform bills at its insane uh, volume of money that just is you can't keep up with it. But um. They're not, you know, they're called infrastructure bills, but 20% of that $4 trillion goes to roads, bridges, and infrastructure. 20% or 10% was gone to education. And then it's just like all this other money is just disappearing. We don't know they're going into social programs, whatever. I don't know where it's going. But this is, I was reading this animal farm and all I could think of was the juxtaposition of the current state of America. And it's scary. And then this speech came out and I was like, oh my God, it is a revolution. This is a revolution. And they want to remake the, the United States government and economy based on social green movements, right? Um, and they're willing to say and do anything to keep this power because right now they're not very popular even amongst their own because their own are usually middle to lower class people who are getting raped at the grocery store, the pump, everywhere. They have immigrants moving into their neighborhoods uh, and now they're, you know, their taxes they pay are going to the social welfare of these immigrants who came in illegally. Um, and I'm all for immigration. I really am. And in fact, Donald Trump, this is a fact that we, you'll find interesting, in his first three years of office, legalized citizenship for more than all of Obama's eight years, within three years. So Donald Trump wasn't about hating immigrants. He was saying, do it the right way. Do it like everybody else. Follow the same rules. Go through the process. We'd love to have you, but we got to make sure that you're not a molester. We got to make sure that you don't have like drug charges or you're not coming with bringing violence with you. So go through the process. But it is true that 
within his first three years, more people were naturalized to the United States than under Obama's eight years, and you cannot defute these these facts. But again, Squealer is turning black to white. The media is turning black to white, right? And uh, it's really scary. Um, yeah, it's heartbreaking because I love that country. I really do. And I grew up in a very good America, I think. And now I I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want to be a part of this discussion. I want to watch what happens because, you know, maybe I am Benjamin the donkey. I mean, this, this, this is the thing about this book, right? Is that you have all these characters that represent different uh, archetypal human beings. Um, and I would be a Benjamin, a cynic, a person that doesn't believe, a skeptic. And... Yet here I am in Thailand saying, I never want to go back to that country like to live again. So I'm abandoning the people that probably need me the most. So I'll be honest, I think maybe I'm a Benjamin dude uh, to some extent. And that's sad to admit, but it's true about human nature, right? Yeah, a but a, a Benjamin is an, is an observer and, and someone that's, you know, philosophical about the situation. And and kind of there is a, a sense there, innate, a feeling of of helplessness because it feels so overwhelming the problem feels so overwhelming that it's just where do you even start trying to bring the country together so i don't think there's anything wrong with being a benjamin in that sense it's just cynicism right that's it's been born from probably a deep-rooted disappointment so you know the the i was thinking about this today when i was on my motorbike as i was riding into the school and i think the country is really, you know, the, the for the young in lots of ways, right? The young and the youthful that take over, bring new ideas, hopefully are more educated, inspire, bring that energy to 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 build a better future, right? And it does get to the point where the older generation, where you know, we're not that far off it, but in 40s and 50s and 60s, you know, we are gonna be the generation gone. It's up to the the younger people to pick up the you know, the light, the torch, bear the torch of light and reason and hope and, and make, make the country better. But if it feels like the younger generation are not responsible or the direction that they're going isn't trustworthy, well, then of course, you're going to be freaking cynical. Yeah, absolutely. And as we say, education plays a major role in where we want our country to go. Uh, it's, Education is not only for the now, it's for the future. And um, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, you know, this this administration pit, pitted the FBI against parents. There was a point where they equated parents who wanted to get involved in the schools as suspects worth looking into. As I wouldn't go as far as terrorists, because I don't think that's what was said but resources were allocated to the fbi to watch and monitor parents and these are just parents that were saying we don't want critical race theory we don't want our kid to grow up thinking about his race and his gender and the fact that he's oppressed we don't want him to be victimized we want him to grow up in a place where he can learn to love each other right this is like breeding hate um so we use these education to well rewrite our story and there's really and, truth uh, to that as well sorry to interrupt but there's a lot of truth to that too because i've taught critical lens theories and i think they're important but overall what's the point are you are you, are you just 
trying to create a sense of dissatisfaction or, you know, this like dissent or, you know, resentment about your country's history or understanding that, you know, as humans, we're flawed and there's, there's things that have happened that we're not proud of, but it's part of who we are and how we got to this point. Um, the, the focus is on how do we do better and understanding how to learn from the past. So I think that's a, that's, that is a reasonable point that you don't want to fill your kids' heads up with just negativity and being critical and critiquing everything wrong with society because that's not productive, right? That's a part of the conversation, you know, but it's not the whole conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And if your parents weren't the ones that told you about this, does that, I mean, if you're learning it from schools and not from your parents, are your parents lying to you? Have your parents set out to deceive you? Are your parents part of the oppressing faction? Those, that group? I mean, they have to be, right? They you never could, told you us could, about this. You could argue never, that they they were, but you could also argue, you could argue that they were because they, they were, you know, admitting the truth, omitting the truth is, in a way, a manipulation. But you can also yeah. argue that lying that, through exclusion. And if your parents are liars, why should you trust them? Now, I'm not saying this is everybody's going on, but this this type of education opens up that form that 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 platform for dissent, and it shatters the family. It, it starts not all families, right? Not all families, but the average family, the sheep, the sheep, four legs good. Two legs bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, it's it, like it kind of did mine as well because, you know, it creates conflict sometimes. And it, if you start critiquing the the great American dream or the great Australian dream and capitalism, uh, and you you use a a Marxist lens to do that, then you start saying, well, why why do I want to contribute to this overall holistic global corruption? And then you know your parents have worked their whole lives to buy at property and and to create a future and to, you know, provide stability, buying into that model. And you say, I don't want to do that. I think that's stupid. That's exactly what happened to me. Um, so yeah. And I don't really know if that's beneficial for the, for, for kids. Like what's, what is the most beneficial for a kid? It's, it's probably not to create resentment and dissent, right? Yeah. Probably to yeah. create purpose and passion, inspired and move forward with change, not not to create nihilists out of children. Yeah, that's right. And you know, you said Marxist lens, and that's that's what Old Major represents in Animal Farm was Karl Marx, and then this this idea. So, I before we go, I just want to say there's there's two different groups uh, factions within the Marx movement. And that is the socialists and the um, communists. And the difference between those two is that socialists want to lever laws. They want to use the due process of creating laws that lead towards social uh, change in their countries. Whereas the communists were uh, to use arms to overthrow. So that's the big difference is the socialist is to use intellect, persuasion, to get everybody on board to create a better society through laws and communists was the like stalin the armed revolution another thing i have to say is that karl marx uh was commissioned to write 
uh, he was a very famous philosopher, German philosopher. He was actually commissioned by a socialist group uh, that it was uh, international within Europe, a socialist group. He was commissioned to write the Communist Manifesto. Okay, so this is super duper important. It wasn't like Marx just came up with this on his own, right? Maybe a lot of people have those feelings. We all want equality. Every single one of us do. We want everybody to be taken care of. I do. I want everybody to have access to healthcare and good education. I do. You know, I'm I'm up for these social ideals, right? A lot of them. Um, but Karl Marx, who may too have been up for them, was commissioned, paid to write the Communist Manifesto. So this is super important because all these people, Stalin, maybe even Biden, are following this ideal of a utopic society um, created by a guy who's no longer with us, but not only that, who's commissioned by people we don't know to create the Communist Manifesto. That is fucking fascinating. That is something worth looking into very deeply and to understand why uh, this is happening. And we've seen it happen throughout the world. There's some success, like... Uh, Again, the socialists are fairly successful because they got everybody on board, right? Norway, Sweden, uh, many countries, Australia to, to an extent. Um, uh, but the communist parties are movements all failed. Cuba, Venezuela, Russia, because it was done by force, right? And bloodshed. And that's where you get the questioning from the people wait a minute, why are we killing each other? We were just friends and neighbors yesterday. Now we're killing, now we're enemies, what? But the story is so loud, it is squealing in your ear, in your sleep, you're dreaming of it because the noise is so loud uh, that you're just shaking and trembling with fear always. And then you have no trust for the other, for your own people. And I feel like this was what Biden, that was the intent of this message. Now, to me, Biden is a puppet. He's on his way out. He's not cognitively there, all there. So God bless him. I, I really hope that he's not totally being used. Part of me hopes that this was his plan because of all the hate that may come out of it. But I don't think it was. I think it's those silent commissioners, right? The people that are behind the scenes that are commissioning Marx to write a manifesto. And that's quite interesting to me. Yeah, I didn't know that about the Communist Manifesto. I wonder who, again, who who gains from that, who benefits. Um, I wonder what the inspiration was. You know, it's definitely a, maybe it was some intellectuals and a power struggle, right? And um, a way to shift um, shift power, a way to shift favor. Interesting. Yeah, I, I got to do a bit more research on that as well. Maybe that's something we can explore a bit more uh, in another podcast. Yeah, and before we go, I don't want to be too cynical and too negative. Uh, I do believe that usually there's good intent, right? There's usually good intent, but if you're not mixing with the masses, you don't really know what they want. You're just kind of trying to do things the right way from what you know and from your circle. So let's say that those intellectuals that uh, commissioned and financed the Communist Manifesto, let's say that their intentions were good. But like Steinbeck said, you know, the plans of mice and men often go astray. Brings us back to the yin and yang, good and evil, 
light and dark. Yeah, I think that's a good good note to finish on. An interesting, uh, yeah, a strong, insightful uh, observation to to finish on because ultimately we're you know everybody's looking for the same thing. Ultimately, we're all trying to go in the one direction, but unfortunately, maybe the damage that we do to to take us there you know it's it's different depending on the individual so i think that's a great observation yeah yeah and the last thing i'd like to say is it's this is why it's so important that we turn off our tvs uh switch off our media feeds from time to time and listen to our own heart and mind and to love thy neighbor um which is one of the oldest quotes you know in the book you know uh love thy neighbor like you love yourself because realistically, like Stephen just said, we all want the same thing. Happiness, love, a full belly, a place to sleep, uh, and a healthy family. And that's it. But there's voices out there. Well, yeah. And there's people telling you that they're Asian. Yeah. <laughs> For or example. that you're an Indian when you're yeah, not in even from India. <laughs> yeah. Indian, Asian, you know, like nothing. Um, and obviously, I'm, I'm just obviously just kidding we're about but yeah we're getting told about them versus us and not humanizing you know not humanizing groups of people which is so dangerous like you know like australia man on the backs australia grew and, and prospered on the backs of immigrants people from asia asians were some of the very first um immigrants to get to australia in the 1850s in the the gold rush and they were there and they were persecuted they were hung they were you know, they were killed um, basically with impunity. But yeah, the, some of the first immigrants to Australia were actually um, Chinese immigrants that came to work in, in the in the gold mines and contributed. Yeah. So yeah, it goes to show, man. It's um, maybe it's we need to look very carefully at the at the narratives that we're being fed and uh, exactly put them under a, a microscope, so to speak. That's right, buddy. Well, thank you. This was a, a great discussion. I'm not sure if it went the exact direction I wanted, but that's okay. That's that's the, the that is the point of these discussions is to let them take us where they go, right? Um, you know, it, there's a lot of factors of what directs our discussions, but I think it was good. I think Anima Farm's a great book. It's fun. It's super easy to read, and there's a lot of layers of uh, meaning there that, um, well, can be enjoyable disheartening but also gets us one step closer to understanding our nature you know the nature of things about us so yeah, yeah man. man thanks thanks a lot buddy it's 10 16 i know you got to sleep uh, yeah I and if you if you haven't read animal farm read it it's it's a it's a great text i'm gonna i, I think you've inspired me to actually to teach it i was thinking that with my grade 11 students i would teach it with a unit of rhetoric so i might be able to just put that in there and start um, use that as a foundational text for teaching rhetoric and argument. Um, so that, that would be a lot of fun. So, all right, brother. Thanks for the chat. Good night. Yep. Thank you, buddy. Have a good night.